views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to the Flyover Podcast. As part of USAFA Aviation, today is episode four. As always, I'm your host, John Costello. With me today is Ezra Barnison. And today, we are privileged to have Major LK Amp Waters, a current C-130J pilot and Air, Air Officer Commanding of Cadet Squadron 39 at the United States Air Force Academy. Ma'am, welcome to the show. Thanks, yeah. Good afternoon. So, could we get a uh, brief background on uh, your career? Sure, yeah. Um, I grew up in Portland, Maine. Came to the Academy in, in processing 2005. Uh, graduated in 2009 as a geospatial science major, minor in Chinese. Um, went off to UPT at Columbus Air Force Base, and then uh, back in that time, we uh, had anybody who was willing or hoping to go C-130s, uh, we actually were able to go down to Corpus Christi, the Naval Air Station there, and do T-44 training. So I was lucky enough to do that. It was pretty awesome to train with the Navy for six months. And, and then um, went to Little Rock Air Force Base from there, learned how to fly the C-130J as uh, for that initial qualification there and mission qual. And then down to Dias Air Force Base in Texas for my first real Lieutenant duty station, uh, a couple deployments there to Afghanistan, and then a lot of trips around the flagpole, um, local training lines, and then some uh, Central America and Greenland, Thule, Greenland, that, that kind of stuff. And then um, I got picked up for instructor school, did that for, for a couple months back at Little Rock. Then I was picked up to go out to Ramstein for two and a half years. Uh, six months of that, I went back to Little Rock Air Force Base to start weapons school, did the United States Air Force Weapons School. It starts there. We do a lot out at Nellis Air Force Base with the rest of the weapons school. A um, couple of trips, other locations throughout, depending on the syllabus of the, the weapons school training. Um, and then back to Germany, uh, did a lot of trips in Europe and Africa. Went to 32 countries in two and a half years. So it was pretty cool. And then um, Back to Little Rock, taught at the weapons school for a bit, then a little bit, a uh, short stint at the AETC wing there, uh, and then picked up for AOC here at the academy. Um, I also, when I was in Germany, met my husband out there in Germany, um, and we got married when we were stationed in Little Rock together, and then uh, now he is, he's here with me as well, but he's a air mobility liaison officer down at Fort Carson, so I can talk to the joint spouse stuff too if you guys are interested in any questions about that. Um, and we have a daughter, she's 14 months old, and it's been a busy ride, but uh, pretty awesome. And um, overall, I'm, I'm really, I feel really fortunate for, for all the great things that I've been able to do in my career and, and people I've gotten to know, so, hmm. yeah. Awesome, so just taking it back a little <coughs> bit, or way back a bit, I should say, uh, what made you want to serve or join initially? Um, so, um, service is uh, something that my family found to be important, uh, especially my dad, and he served in the Army. He actually served two tours in Vietnam, and then when I t came to the Academy, this, I think this is pretty unique, he had already been retired, and then he went, I think he was inspired by me coming to the Academy, and then he went back to the Nar an Army recruiter, joined back up, and then served in Iraq. So... Um, my dad had a pretty big impact on my decision to come to the Air Force Academy. You know, he, I think from middle school onward, every summer I got a brochure for all of the service academies that just happened to show up at our doorstep. And um, I started to look into it. We did, we did some tours of the different service academies. I went and did a summer seminar here at the Academy um, between my, I guess that was my senior year, and decided that it was a right fit. I really liked the people here. Um, I thought it would be a really unique experience, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought maybe medical career field at first, and then came to the academy and changed my, my path a bit once I got introduced to a life of aviation and got excited about it. What, uh, what, what made you change, have that mindset change? Like, when did you know you wanted to fly, and, and why? Um, so my four-degree year, I struggled academically. Um, I, I didn't quite make it on ACPRO. I just barely stayed above that, but... Uh, started taking chemistry and physics and all those things seemed really they just bogged me down I fell fell asleep a lot in chemistry honestly um, and so then I just struggled in that class had to I was grateful for some some tutors in my squadron to keep me afloat and then um, I realized that maybe that 
direction was not quite right for me. Um, my, my AOC then, uh, then major Mike Snodgrass. So if he's li- ever listening to this podcast, thanks. Thank you, sir. Uh, he signed me up for powered flight and I took some, some powered flight. I got to do jump my senior year. I got a, an ops air force, uh, tour to Wichita, Kansas and did the, I, I got a ride on a KC-135, got to lay down in the boom. That was pretty cool. We went down to Hawaii. And so I got excited about the travel opportunities. Um, I thought aviation in general was, it seemed pretty cool. A lot of working with your hands and interacting with people and coordinating things with, with folks. And um, I I got excited about it because it seemed like, why else would I uh, put up with the academy um, to not try to go fly an airplane and that's just my personal opinion but you know there's a ton of great opportunities out of here but for me that made sense yeah that's that's mindset my oh, mindset yeah. when it comes to the academy it's like if you, if you don't want to fly gonna make it good on you but yeah um yeah so when you decided you wanted to fly ended up going to pilot training uh was the c-130 your your dream plane or what you want to fly um and ultimately when you found out you were going to be flying the c-130 like what was that like? Were you happy, sad, or over yeah. the next few months? Like, when did that change? So I had no idea what I wanted to fly when I went to, to pilot training. I just was hoping that I would pass pilot training and get some wings. Um, and so I didn't really think that far in advance about which aircraft um, would would be a good fit. And I just figured, keep, keep putting in the effort, and hopefully a good air, aircraft chooses me, which I'll say is kind of the same advice I as an AOC now try to give to people so that they aren't, um, set up for thinking that their one life goal is to fly uh, one particular air- airplane. So I think that actually worked out to my benefit because I had a really open mind about it, and um, I think that that was helpful. And I had a neighbor who was in a, in a UPT class ahead of me, and he was a navigator on C-130s, and um, he started telling me a, to- a whole bunch of different stories about the C-130 and travel, and basically the Herc is a... Uh, you, you really get to know the people on your airplane when you're traveling with them, um, whether that's stateside or in the Pacific or in Germany. The the slick C-130, so there's a lot of different variants, right? But the slick C-130, which is the, the version that I fly, which is just cargo troop transport, tactical airdrop, airland, um, jack-of-all-trades type of airplane. It's not special operations. It's part of Air Mobility Command. Um, and then in USAFE and, and PACAF, you can... You can um, fly there as well. So pretty pretty cool mission set. And once I uh, w- was going through the T6 portion of pilot training, you start to answer a lot of questions about uh, to your flight commander about the things you're interested in. For me, it was travel, and I wanted to be involved in humanitarian missions if, if that were possible. And um, I, I really enjoyed the low-level navigation portion of um, pilot of the T6 training as well as formation and C-130s do all that. So um, I got to fly with an instructor who was a C-130 guy and he basically told me that, you know, it, it sounds like a good fit. You should put in for that. I did. I got picked up for T-44s down in Corpus Christi, which was the second half of UPT. There were, there were a couple of us who got picked up from my class and we all went on to Corpus and had a great time and um, really got the uh, got a good experience flying, continuing to fly prop aircraft. So the reason they sent us there is because you continue just flying props, and and um, I so I've I've never really had any jet time, just just props, which is uh, I think there's a benefit to that to um, knowing flight char- characteristics uh, and being really familiar with that along the way. So. Something I did fail to mention was that now I'm flying a, the Twin Otter here, which, again, another prop airplane, which is pretty sweet. So, what, What's um, it like? In, in comparison, C-130, Twin Otter, I mean, <coughs> here the Twin Otter is kind of a legendary aircraft. And yeah. Like, wh- wh- what's it like? I mean, it it's, uh, you know, not – it's really not that different from from flying a C-130. You know, how's it get bigger? How's it get smaller when you have your control inputs? Um, sure, they – the throttles are up above my head in a twin otter, which that's that was a bit of an adjustment. Um, but it's it, it feels just like flying an airplane, you know. You, you kind of knowing how to fly a prop airplane and knowing what that P factor can do to your aircraft. So when the when you put power in, um, 
it, it adjusts your, your nose canter and you have to adjust with rudder. So being comfortable utilizing rudders is, is uh, helpful if you continue that on through your career. So that's something that we see when folks go to T1 training and then go back to go to Herc's. They have to relearn how to use, a, use the rudders when they switch back. Mm, cool. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier you love the travel aspect of the C-130. What's the coolest place you've gotten to go? I mean, like I said, I've been to a ton of different countries. I don't even, I think somewhere in the, the 50s count total. Um, but in, in um, when I was stationed in Germany, went to 32 different countries in two and a half years. Some, some for, for just leave travel, but a lot of places out there on, on orders. Um, but probably one of the, the cooler, unexpected places that I ended up for 10 days when my airplane was broken was in, in Pattaya City, Thailand. And so we had we were on our way home from a deployment, and we got stuck there for for ten days because uh, we had an engine issue, and um, they had to generate an aircraft out of Dias Air Force Base to fly it out to us in Thailand. And while we were there, there was a typhoon that went up the coast as well. So we just basically had to wait it out until the weather was good enough for that airplane to come in with a new engine and maintenance crew and everything. But um, that was was a unique experience. But you know. I've, I would say other amazing places. I really enjoyed my um, my trips to Western Europe, you know, France, Belgium. Um, I loved Poland and Romania, Morocco. Those are all really interesting places. Been down to Honduras as well. So that was a was a pretty interesting spot to to drop off and so cargo oh as well. Awesome. On, and so on that on that <laughs> note, sorry. Yeah. Like. So it might have been a little bit different in Thailand because the the a typhoon coming the weather probably wasn't too nice but sure. you know if you're on orders okay say you go to you know Europe yeah. and you drop whatever you got to drop but you have like a say a day layover before you fly home and mm-hmm. like what what does that day look like sometimes is it just pure all right what are we going to do in Europe for a day mm-hmm. or is it like all right um I need to do this this and this for the military while I'm here yeah, it kind of depends on how much time you have, how much money you got, um, what the orders specifically say as far as if you are allowed to go off and do your own thing, if, if that's even specified. But, for instance, in, in Thailand, um, we our official location that we were staying was a, a Holiday Inn with an uh, infinity pool overlooking the ocean, and it was beautiful. And then, um, and the weather in where we were was fine. It was just the, the typhoon that was preventing the aircraft give, bringing our maintenance package over was delayed. So, um, or delayed our, that, that maintenance package. So we, um, we rented a double, double-decker boat and had a boat driver take us out onto the, onto the ocean. And we went fishing off the side of the boat, caught our own fish. They had a grill on the boat. So we just grilled the fish that we had just caught and reading that and there were 10 uh, air crew and 10 maintenance with us so um because we're all redeploying right and so we had a we had a good time um just exploring some of those locations we did a what do we do a um uh, a zipline tour a jungle zipline tour while we were out there too and uh, we went to a Muay Thai fight also. Um, so, I mean, we and we did some, some car, some go-kart racing. Those go-karts, I'm pretty sure, didn't have a, a speed limit. Uh, it, it didn't have any sort of limit to how fast you could go on those. So that was maybe a little dangerous, but sign your high-risk activity forms, you're fine. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> no, we, we explored a whole bunch of different places in, in that area and, um, you get you get to know the crew. Uh, some people are are more are more into going out and exploring places than others, and that's fine. You know, you just you respect whatever your crew members and whoever's on the trip what they want to do. But uh, if you have someone who's a bit of a ringleader and and gets those trips going, it it can make it a lot more fun when you get stuck on the road. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So, what's that relationship like with your enlisted air crew? Mm-hmm. You know, some people maintenance, some load masters, like. Yep. How does that working relationship work? Yeah, great question. Um, so you have you have to draw some boundaries, right, and um, maintain those professional bounds. Um, you can still go have fun as officer enlisted together and, and go on these jungle zipline tours and uh, rent the rent the boat, but 
you know, you are still cognizant of the fact that you are their superior and um, you're setting the example, right? So at a certain point in the, in the day or the night um, that you may split off into separate groups, it kind of depends on your community. If it's a, or if it's a small group, you know, if you just have a couple, couple pilots, a couple load masters and a crew chief, uh, you may all just stick together, go eat some dinner um, and just, just hang out like, like normal people, but just maintaining that, that respect of, of authority and uh, trying to maintain that um, positive influence when, when you can. Mm. Yeah, stateside, um, when you're not TDY or in mm-hmm. a foreign country, what is it like the day in the life of a, of a heavy pilot look like? Okay, so stateside, my, my experience there, Dias Air Force Base for the most part, <clears throat> was there four and a half years. And so you'd show up, um, say, say you're, you're uh, flying the next day, so you may show up and start your mission planning at around 8 in the morning, and then you're planning until about 1500. 1500, you might have a crew brief for the next day as to if it's a tactical mission that you're planning, try to do all the coordination for the low level route, the what you're airdropping, because um, there's there's probably training training beans, and we call them logging beans when you go go fly, or just you're logging your currencies when you're when you're doing that. So, loadmasters are gonna have to log certain currencies that you have to consider as far as you know whether it's a heavy equipment drop or a container delivery system drop, which they're all done in a a different way. Um, depends on how the aircraft is rigged and what type of equipment you're dropping, how heavy it is, what types of parachutes you got. So you got to take all those considerations in and plan around that. So what is your objective area? So you start with the objective area and you work backwards, right? So you work through that that mission planning, you do your airspace coordination, you do your formation coordination, how many airplanes are going out together in the same flight. And then you come together at the end of that mission planning day and hopefully have a good sync or a mission, mission brief. So someone's a mission commander, they're giving the brief. They talk through what time show time is the next day, what time step time, what's the weather look like, uh, notice to airmen, those types of things that you're, you want to make sure that you're working through so you can forecast any issues for the next day. Um, and then the next day, you show up at show time um, and you do a quick step brief and that will just be any any key changes or updates to the weather, notice to airmen, uh, any any other maintenance issues that might be a consideration, if any aircraft are delayed, what the rally rejoin plan might be. And then you go step out to the airplane, um, go do your pre-flight checks and uh, set up your, do your cockpit setup, and then go taxi out and fly. And usually uh, a stateside sortie or uh, even in Germany, those are usually about a, a four hour sortie to go do some training and usually do a couple of low level routes or a what we call s- ski station keeping equipment. So that's to be able to fly in formation um, in the weather. So we have equipment that can, uh, we, we navigate essentially off of the aircraft in front of us utilizing that equipment so that we can, um, we don't hit each other in the, in the clouds. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yep. And then usually some kind of a, uh, you fly that up high, you, ha- you fly as high as the threat allows. So there will be a notional threat that you're planning to, whether that's uh, small arms, man pads, or radar guided missiles, something of, to that effect. You plan around that as well, fly as, th- as high as the threat allows, and then you're going to drop down into your objective area. And however, you are airdropping that what that user requires, what depends on who that user is and what they need. And then, um, but for training, you, you come up with, with something notional and the squadrons often have a, a standard for what that looks like every every month or every six months or whatever that squadron operating instruction dictates. So you plan off of that, go out, do your airdrop, and then you do instrument approaches for, for currencies and then you land. Um, then you come back, debrief, and Debriefs can run pretty short or they can be a couple hours. It kind of depends on how com- complex that sortie was or how uh, how many mistakes were made, right? So um, you really got to check your ego at the door. You go into the debrief and you learn from your mistakes because no sortie is ever perfect. And so you there's always something more to learn. And I think that um, after the debrief, you know, you go home and 
do it again the next day, right? And you're not flying every day. You're not necessarily planning every day. The schedule can kind of get jacked around depending on what uh, what's going on. And you may have an off-station trip that's, that's planned as well. So these TDYs that you've mentioned um, – there's, there's a ton of different types that you may be, be picked up for, but the most common ones are going to be a joint airborne air transportability trainer, so a JAT, and that would be something that you would go do with the Army. So you may go out to Fort Campbell or um, some of the other Army bases where they have like Fort Bragg. Uh, actually, they just changed their, I think their Fort Independence now. They actually just changed their, their name, so my apologies there. But, um, yeah, we... Uh, we may go out there and drop the 82nd Airborne and for, for practice, and um, but that's a TDY. So that might have a little bit different flavor of what your your week might look like. Um, so you just kind of plan around those things. Or or you may have a cargo movement. You know, I you know, went out to uh, um, been down to Guantanamo Bay before. You have to stop in Norfolk and pick up the cargo, go down, to, go down there and back, or go up to... Uh, Thule Greenland for a, <coughs> excuse me, a resupply up there. And so that really dictates whether or not you're doing off stations for a little while or you're staying home and flying what we call flying the flagpole and doing training missions. What uh, What's the breakdown, do you think, like out of a year, if you're in an operational flying unit, how often are you away from home? Um, kind of, it depends, right? And that's, that's the, probably the political answer, but it just... It really does depend on a lot of different things, and um, I hesitate to put a number to it because it, it kind of depends on what's going on in the world, uh, how many missions are actually getting tossed down. There's a plan for you as an individual to try to get you upgraded. If you're a fast burner and you've been volunteering for everything, you are taking all the trips that suck, and you're showing the schedulers that you're you're ready to rock and you want to fly every possible second of every day they may push you to instructor school sooner because you got your hours sooner and you're showing that initiative um so you may be gone a lot or um if you're tasked to work a ground job that takes up a lot of your time the schedulers will then acknowledge that and you won't be on the flying schedule as much and you might be home a little bit more but you have more duties affiliated with some some ground uh, requirements. So notoriously, um, being an, an exec for, for a commander, that can tend to have you on the ground a little bit more, but it offers a lot of other opportunities in, in exchange for that. So it kind of depends on what you want. It also depends on what what vector uh, you're looking at as far as your career development goes and um, just communicate your desires that uh, the best you can. I have somebody, somebody give me some advice uh, when I was a uh, captain that I wish I'd known as a lieutenant is when you show up to a unit, if you just plop yourself in whatever shop you want to work in, people around will, you will start to recognize that, will notice that, will say, hey, this person actually really wants to work in tactics. Maybe we should have them in tactics. And then now you've planted the seed, you've taken some control of your own destiny there and um, just showing initiative that you're interested in that. And usually your leadership will notice that they, you know, they want to take care of you to the point where they're setting you up to do the jobs that you're interested in. So say you want to be, you want to go to the weapon school eventually, which it's hard to know that this young, but um, you can you can go plant yourself in an office and say, hey, I'm here to help. I would like to learn more about tactics. Is there anything I can do to help you out? Because usually as a brand-new lieutenant on, on station, you're doing a lot of orientation and um, working the duty desk, and, and then on your off days, you don't really have a job. So besides flying. But so, um, yeah, all, all that to say, uh, you're – what every day looks like is different everywhere. Um, Ramstein, it looked a lot different than it did in Abilene, Texas and at Dias Air Force Base. Dias was a lot more local training. Ramstein, we're going on trips a lot, you know, going out to Tbilisi, Georgia, or going out, out to Bucharest, Romania, or down to Africa. A lot of 10-day Africa trips would, would pop up on the schedule, and you might know one or two days prior that you're going down to Miami, Niger, or Njemina, Chad, or out to 
um, Horn of Africa, and you're just going to go be there for 10 days, a couple weeks, something like that. So um, it, it kind of depends on where you are, what's going on in the world, and what the plan is for you as far as your development goes. So kind of take the bull by the horns and do what interests you. Yep. Mm. So you mentioned weapons school there for a second. Mm -hmm. What kind of training do you receive in weapons school for heavies? Sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in order to even apply for the weapons school, you have to have 50 instructor hours. So you have to be, you have to have gone through whatever your particular airframes upgrade program is to become an instructor and then show some experience as an instructor. And so the weapons school starts out with a, a week-long core one academics where everybody gets on the same page. Every single um, FSC that is in the weapons school goes out to Nellis Air Force Base and you, you get a core of academics to start out with. And then so many of the units stay out there at Nellis, but then there are also many geographically separated units, so GSUs, C-130s being one of them, um, C-17s too, uh, and the, the tankers are um, in and out depending on where they need to be for support. Um, there's just a lot of different locations as far as GSUs go, but for C-130 specifically, so I'll talk to that, we go back to Little Rock Air Force Base, and then the goal of those first couple months of C-130 instructor uh, weapon school is to become the expert instructor. So the goal is for you to be the instructor of instructors within your community. So you take tactical problems, and they are more complex than what you might see at the at your home station unit, and with you know, multiple tactical problems in one one sortie with multiple airdrops, multiple air lands. You're trying to do a, a max flow. You're you're planning to try to um, throw anything at these instructors so that if they're faced with anything, they'll be able to problem solve it. So you're you're a, a master problem solver ultimately when it comes down to it. And then um, once you've become that instructor of instructors the goal is then to get you prepared for integration. And so that integration piece is the last month, month and a half out at Nellis. So you go back out there for the end of weapon school. And, you know, we're not going to, I don't want to speak in absolutes, but a C-130 is not going to win a war on its own, right? And so it's all about that integration and knowing how to speak the languages of all the other aircraft um, and who are going to be fighting in a large-scale war. And so it, it's a practice in being able to communicate your desired effects, and then how do you ask for what you need from other aircraft. So if I need seed or something to just get crushed in order for me to accomplish the mission, which I'm supporting a probably some ground force commander, um, Whatever that ground force commander needs to be able to do his job on the ground, his or her job on the ground, is I'm going to work backwards, kind of like I said earlier. You know, so I start at that objective area. Where are we, where are we bringing our troops and supplies, and where do you need it? How am I delivering it? Um, can I can I land there? Do I need to airdrop it? And then work backwards. And then if do you have so much stuff and so many people that you need to move that you need multiple aircraft? Um, are the C-130s the right, the right aircraft for this job? That's not necessarily something that I'm going to be deciding, but maybe the higher, higher level authorities or what aircraft are available in order to do that. And we talk about, you know, that agile combat employment type environment now where we need to be ready to execute without necessarily having the communications reach back that we've had for the last 20 years in Afghanistan and the Middle East. And um, so... It, you just have to be flexible in order to know what that desired effect is and then how do you ask for your needs. So I know I'm speaking kind of in vague terms, but does that kind of make sense? So if I need um, something destroyed, a, a radar that is uh, impacting my ability to get to that objective area for that ground force commander, then I'm going to go to that mission planning cell with my seed and deed 
brothers and sisters and ask them like, hey, is there any way you can get some coverage for this amount of time, this duration and this location? Um, and do you have that capability to do so? Or And they might come back and say like, no, but we can do this instead. Or, you know, maybe talk to cyberspace. They might have an ability to help us out, right? And so it's, it's pretty cool that you get to see at the weapons school the instructor levels from all those different AFSCs who might be able to come in and help me do my job. And then I can also provide an effect for them as well. So Yeah, so um, what's the timeline on like when you start weapon school until when you end it? And then I know you went and taught at weapon school. Mm -hmm. Did you go directly back or what was the timeline like? And uh, what was it like going back and teaching at weapon school? Sure, so um, weapon school itself is six months. So, you know, it um, took me See, I got my wings in 2011, and then I went to weapon school in 2016. So as I can kind of give you a gauge on how long it takes within the C-130 community. I went a little bit early, I think, for for weapon school. Uh, I, if I could do it again, I'd probably try to get a little more experience before I went, just so that I was more confident going through it. But um, ultimately, it, it taught me a lot of lessons, right? And so from there... Um, because I, I was stationed at Ramstein at the time that I went to weapon school. I went back to Ramstein for another couple of years. And that was, you know, an operational tour where I, I worked as a flight commander. And then I was a chief of tactics for the operational support squadron for a while, which was doing a lot of work with the approving and doing safety of flight reviews for drop zones and landing zones around Europe and Africa, which is a, a neat experience. And then that's when I also did the that trip down to... Morocco and worked with the, the Moroccans and I was a mission commander for a flying training deployment down there. So I got some operational experience as a weapons officer and then I went back to Little Rock Air Force Base in um, 2018 to teach at the weapons school for some time. And unfortunately for a bit I was uh, DNF for migraines. So um, you, you may have heard that Migraines are, that's a bad word when you're in the, in the flying community. And so I think I got pretty lucky that I was able to work through those and get some, um, some kind of holistic looks at some ways to treat them. And I've been migraine free for a year and a half, two years now, but, um, it's been, that's off record. I've never had migraines for any doctors listening. Yeah. Anyway, I'll just say, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I had to essentially um, step over to the, the AETC wing there in in Little Rock while I was working through that, stu that stuff. So I only taught at the weapons school for about a year, and I was mostly in, in charge of core academics for the, for the students um, and doing a lot of the, the ground duties, coordination, stuff like that. But it was, um, it was interesting to see it was really cool to watch the the newly minted instructors come in and then leave as full-blown weapons officers who are confident, able to brief really clearly and concisely. Um, and it, it was a great experience to see the, the product that we put out, out of weapons school across the board from all the AFSCs are folks who are able to tackle a pretty much any problem that they're faced with. So it, it gave me a lot of confidence that if we were to have to go to a large-scale war, that those are the people who are going to get called to do the planning and a lot of times the executing. So Yeah, so as, a as someone who uh, deployed to Afghanistan, what does a deployment in the C-130 look like? Sure, so um, back in my day, uh, <laughs> 2012, 2014, those were the times that I went to Afghanistan. So... A little bit far removed, but 20, 2012, Kandahar, and then 2014, Bagram um, in Afghanistan. It's a lot of what we call hub-and-spoke operations. So you have a, a home base, and so in 2012, it was Kandahar, and we just do a bunch of out-and-backs to the different locations around Afghanistan that, that needed our counter-terror help. And um, some days felt more useful than others, uh, both in 2012 and 2014. Uh, you know, your aeromedical evac missions might might look, it, it, it gets kind of real when that stuff happens, when you're carrying patients who have had some pretty bad things happen. 
Um, but then some some other missions, I'll tell you, there was a time that we moved uh, pallets of tires around Afghanistan, and I remember one of my loadmasters saying that he marked one of the pallets with, uh, with his initials to see if it came back onto our airplane uh, from one place to the next, and it, it was often for... He, he saw the, that same pallet of tires pop up again from the one location to the next. So some days felt like it was we were just there for a show of force, which is that's where some of that cynicism might come in. But then other days it felt like, you know, I did we did 15 airdrop missions. And when I was deployed to Kandahar, you know, you're flying to a location where there is no other way necessarily to get troops, food, water, ammunition, that kind of stuff. And um, uh, sure, you could you could send a convoy of vehicles out there, but that's a lot more risky than being able to just airdrop it to them. So, you know, you don't you if you can avoid those IED risks with airdrop, that was pretty rewarding. So, um, but those types of deployments, it looked like you're flying one day, you're off the next day. You're flying one day, you're off the next day. And those are long days. You might be flying 16 hour days and sometimes you're asking for a, a waiver to get back if you get delayed for whatever reason and I even had a day that went out to 18 hours and I was I was tired so you go back to your back to go back to your clue so your your uh um container little dorm room um Oddly, a lot like the academy. It really does prepare you. I promise you guys. Uh, but yeah, you end up staying in your your dorm room and um, get to know some of the folks you're you're living with, or you might be living with your crew members. Uh, I typically females with females and males with males, but um, not not always. It kind of depends on what the locations are like. Miami Niger, that you're sharing a tent with everyone. Uh, you just have to go change elsewhere, but yeah, those um, those deployments, it was typical. It was kind of Groundhog Day, you know. You're doing gym tan, laundry, and fly, and uh, I was in, I was working out every day, and just you're you're taking trying to take care of yourself. And I got my master's while I was out there. That's um, that's wild. Yeah. That's, that's pretty crazy in the middle <laughs> yeah. of a middle of a war zone. Yep, got my master's online, and I got my airline transport pilot license while I was out there too. So yeah, so you can. You can do a lot of different things. Just good so, flying, great flying. So, so if you break down, you know, on deployment, if you break down in the middle of nowhere, what does that look like for you know, you know your crew chief to like try and work on the plane, and what's that level of trust there? Um, it kind of depends on the the level of risk of the location that you break down. So, there might be. It's it's funny. My my husband actually just told this story to my squadron uh, last week. He broke down in Somalia. And um, they they had a tire pop, and so they they were looking at how I mean there's no way to take off when you have a pop tire. So um, and that was actually pretty high risk, and the the folks on the ground were like, "You guys need to take off, get out of here. You're gonna expose us, and you know you're only going in there at night so that they you're, you're trying to go unexposed and or at least lesser exposed, but." All well, I to say, yeah, you have to, for, for him, what he ended up doing was trying to call back and get a maintenance team out there, and they they had to generate another airplane to come down and bring him a new tire, but then they took that his crew back up to Djibouti, where they were stationed at him at the time, and so, yeah, you, it, it all comes with risk, and a lot of becoming an aircraft commander, and that word commander is a lot about judging your level of risk that you are faced with in in any given situation. So um, you're making decisions as best of your uh, to your ability within the guidelines or what the book says. But sometimes the book doesn't have all the answers and you have to piecemeal them the different regulations together to be able to allow you some some leeway and some judgment to make decisions to, you know, take care of your people, take care of the equipment, and make sure that everyone everyone is uh, getting back home safely. So, um, 
I guess for that to, I, I guess that in a roundabout way, trying to answer your question. Um, sure. I, I definitely trust my maintainers on the road to, to fix my airplane. I, I broke down in Njamina Chad one time with some, with a pressurization issue and there's different levels of breakdown of an airplane. There's, uh, can you still continue the mission with whatever uh, issue your aircraft might have, or is it grounding? And that's kind of the, the litmus test of can we continue or not? And then also how risky is it for us to stay here? And how important is it that we continue the mission? So you may be able to continue the mission to the next destination so that you can get better maintenance or they have better support or because maybe your crew chief is a an engine specialist, but it's a pressurization issue. So their wheelhouse is not pressurization. So you kind of have to weigh all those different factors and and determine what the best course of action is for you in order to take care of yourself and your crew and your your airplane. So I know another thing that was has been was really interesting looking at uh, talk leading up to this episode when you were sending me all the information about your career is the uh, D Day reenactments mm-hmm. that you flew in. So I guess, I guess that's that's cool. Like yeah. I don't know. Uh, can you just talk a little bit through what happened? Uh, were you selected? Was it volunteered volunteer basis? Um, and yeah, um, it's pretty cutthroat to get on that trip, right? So every year, the thirty seventh Airlift Squadron under Ramstein goes out to Normandy. We stay in hotels in Cherbourg, and we um, bring a bunch of airplanes, and we go fly. A bunch of low levels, and we do uh, flyovers of different towns in in the Normandy region, and the mayors of all the different towns are hosting big celebrations and parades, and uh, it it goes on for a couple weeks. I encourage you all to go out there during that time of year. Sometime it's um, pretty incredible. But you know, we're doing flyovers of Point du Hoc and the American Cemetery, the German Cemetery. We're we're doing you know um, a lot of it's kind of a, a big public relations type of, uh, we call it a flying training deployment. And then we also did a, a big formation with uh, aircraft from, from other countries uh, to include the Germans, which is pretty cool. And so uh, I, you know, volunteered. I asked to be put on, on the list. And uh, we, the group that got selected to go, they tried to... Um, maintain some continuity from year to year. So, and then if somebody is better at the French language, they might have a uh, better chance of getting picked up for something like that. So they can work with the French because you're having, having to work with the host nation for their airspace coordination and things like that. But for me, I was just an instructor ready to fly the line, raise my hand. I kind of paid my dues and bided my time, and it was one of my last my last trips before I PCS from Ramstein back to Little Rock. So, and I think I got, got pretty lucky that I was able to fit it. They, they fit me onto the trip, but yeah. That's awesome. Mm. Yeah. So a while back you mentioned that you got to work with the Moroccan military mm-hmm. and, you know, a bunch of other uh, foreign services. Uh, what was that like? And, you know, what lessons did you learn from, you know, other militaries? Yeah. So, um, and 2018, we did a flying training deployment down in Morocco, and the uh, there's a Marine unit that was actually working with the Moroccans to do, and that, this was all through AFRICOM out of Stuttgart, Germany. So they were, we, we had to coordinate basically with the Marines, and then they, they told us essentially we would like to have C-130 presence in Morocco uh, as part of this counter-terror and counter-insurgency training that they had going with the local Moroccan military, army, and their air force, which the Moroccans have their own C-130s as well. Um, They do a lot of just within Morocco transportation there. But anyway, all that to say, there wasn't a lot of guidelines or guidance from AFRICOM as to what they specifically wanted us to do in Morocco. So I was given essentially a blank slate, just you have four airplanes and you get to go during these two weeks. Uh, I was then captain 
LK Martino, so that's my main name, but um, you have free reign to go down there for a couple of weeks and make sure that you get us a lot of training, make sure that you're integrating with the Moroccans, make sure you're integrating with the Marines, and uh, make it worth our time to send crews down there to get some good good training. So I was like, okay, well, well that was pretty cool. Um, but it was, it was a little daunting, too, at the same time, because there, there wasn't really a precedent for it. So um, there were a couple of planning uh, conferences that I went to leading up to it down in Agadir. And then uh, we, we executed out of Kenitra Air Base, which was the Moroccan C-130 base, so that we had at least some ability to work with their maintenance. But different C-130 models, the older H models and we were flying the J models, but still it gave us opportunity to cross talk with them and um, our maintenance worked with theirs and our logistics personnel worked with theirs. And then one of the big things that the Moroccans wanted to learn from us was how we do our aeromedical evacuation procedures. Um, and that's something that they really emphasized. And so we actually brought down a few C-21s as well who also have that mission set. And um, we were able to show them a little bit. They showed us some things. We showed them how to do combat offload methods where if there's no um, material handling equipment like forklifts or um, or K-loaders, then, but you just have some, some big fuel barrels or something of, of that effect, you can download equipment off the back of an airplane by rolling it onto the, onto the, those fuel barrels, which is pretty crazy, but just uh, unique mission sets that we were able to share with each other. They showed us their simulator. Um, we were able to fly in the Atlas Mountains, do some low levels through the mountains. We uh, went out and I had a, a, a great team of, of um, contingency response folks who went with me and they found a a farmer's field that we turned into a dirt landing strip and we got them to go survey it for us uh, we hired a, a uh, some some equipment to go out there and make sure that it was clear and then um, yeah we, we landed in the, in the middle of a farmer's field and some dirt that was really hard to find <laughs> that, that whole yeah. Moroccan two week period seems like a like a like a lot of planning and a lot yeah. of busy <laughs> a lot of a lot of busy stuff to do leading Absolutely. up to that. Um so kind of transitioning uh kind of to the future fight and where the C one thirty plays in the future fight and how the Air Force can ensure pilots stay in the Air Force and not just bleed out to all the airlines. Mm -hmm. Um what do you think the Air Force can do better to retain heavy pilots that they're, that they're not already doing? I wish I had a good answer for this. Yeah, it's like, do you have a silver stuff. bullet now? Just like, <laughs> obviously, it, it's, it's a hard problem um, that I think the Air Force obviously is going through. Sure. Um, but yeah. Yeah, um, that's a, definitely a tough question because it all, it, it depends so much on what different families need and want in their lives and uh, what what direction they're headed and um, I think something that's really fatiguing is the the number of moves that we've had you know this will be my I'm coming up on a PCS and it'll be my ninth move and I commissioned in 2009 so that's a that's a lot of moves over that period of time and so it can just get pretty tiring and you know I I have a young family right I have a young I have a kid who is only 14 months old and I think this is the first time that it's really hit me that, oh my gosh, I have to find a new daycare and I have to find her a new pediatrician and a dentist and um, where is she going to go to school? Now we need to pick a house that's in a good school district because we could be there for a long time. I don't know. And just a lot of those unknowns are challenging. And so being able to provide expectation management to, to people, I think, is helpful, but I don't really know how to crack that code. Um, the Air Force has thrown money at it, right? So the, are you familiar with the, the pilot bonus that, that comes out sometimes? Um, so yeah, I mean, I was offered I was offered a bonus. Um, I, I did take the bonus. I am staying until 20. It made sense for our family because I'm, um, I, you know, I'm not that far away from retirement when in the grand scheme of things I can retire in 2029. So I took the bonus that will 
complete in 2029. And then I'm not really sure what my husband plans on doing, but he has a little bit more flexibility to kind of decide now. And uh, I, he might stay in. He might try to go to the airlines in a few years. I'm, I'm not totally sure. But, um, yeah, it, I think that expectation management piece is what scares people and, and then also just makes it really hard on families is the, the moves. So having some stability, I, I think, would be more ideal. You know, we can do a lot of things remotely now. I, I think moving a lot, the intent behind it is to give you exposure to different mission sets. And I see that as being beneficial, right? Because my, my time at Dias Air Force Base, it was a diff- totally different flavor of C-130 flying than it was in, at Ramstein me so uh, having both of those experiences that breadth of knowledge is helpful in building you to become a better leader a better aviator um, and so I I can see why we do move but at the same time there I think there needs to be a bit more of a balance and they did just release a new policy that conus to conus moves are going to be four years as standard but you know, there's always exceptions to that rule. So, for instance, when you come up on your major select time frame, you may be eligible for an intermediate development program, which the USAFA AOC program is one of those. So that can curtail your duration at a given location and then have you move sooner than you may have anticipated. And so we came out here to the academy that the year at UCCS for learning or getting a master's in um, in education, uh, really leadership and mentorship and counseling, we end up owing a little bit more time than we have left here at the academy. So it tacks on that ADSC that brought me out to a year past this assignment, which kind of drove me to decide to stay until 20. I'm, I'm already, I'm going to, I'm going to be pretty close to that anyway after this next move so it made sense for us but it's very individual I think the decision is very personal and I don't think any any less of anyone who decides to depart after their ADSC is up but um, it, it all depends on what works for you and your family and what you want uh, for, for the rest of your career you know your family's going to be there for you Air Force isn't always going to be there for me, but I've definitely enjoyed my experiences, so it made sense for us. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. And so with having a spouse, you know, in the same airframe mm-hmm. even, how has that been? Have you all been able to stay together mostly, or how's the travel been? Um, for the most part, it's been really helpful. I think joint spouse in the either the same aircraft or compatible aircraft at, um, at different locations where that – uh, certain bases might have both of those airframes is really helpful or having someone as a pilot and someone in a support in a support career field makes sense as a joint spouse couple but um, there's smarter smarter type joint spouse uh, matchups than others to make things easier for us uh, my husband is a 2013 grad so really our uh, biggest difference is our, our year group difference. So you'll see in your career as you progress, different opportunities will pop up. So I may be eligible for director of operations or commander well before he is, um, which I, I think actually is kind of helpful for us because we're not both trying to um, go for similarly competitive jobs at the same time, if, if that makes sense. So uh, or similarly taxing jobs so uh, a commander job you know is essentially a 24 hour a day job you're always on call and so if if both of you are always on call and it's been done I I have some very close friends who are both commanders down at Dias Air Force Base right now and they have two kids and they're making it work and that's incredible so there are definitely ways to make it work but for us it's nice because when one of us is often in work mode the the other can be uh, responsible for more of the at-home things like my husband just scheduled the, our our movers for for our house and um, 
and I'm really grateful for the fact that he can take on a lot of those responsibilities at home uh, and also have his his job at down at Port Carson right now while I am uh, an AOC. So. Yeah. Um, so talking a little bit about the C-130, I mean, it's a platform that goes back to the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, how is the Air Force upgrading the C-130 today for it to serve in decades to come? Uh, uh, I mean... Or are they not doing enough? I, I mean, as far as I know, I've, I've always been very impressed with the C-130 maintenance long term. Um, we have... So the C-130J has sensors on the aircraft that can show G-loading and um, it can help to give data for the longevity of the aircraft. And I think one of the the biggest things, biggest fears are the the wing boxes and that wing root of how structurally sound it is. Um, I I actually just saw an article on one of the Facebook groups that I'm on, which is a, I know Facebook's for old people, but... Um, it's good for networking, um, but they're they're looking at throwing some external tanks back on slick C-130s to help with this agile combat employment problem and testing. I, I think they still owe from what I, I you know I don't want to speak for for those in test, but it's all that's going to impact the longevity of the wing route and. Guess the duration that that particular aircraft can be flown or what types of inspections need to be done in order to make sure there is no cracking in the wing spar. It's just, um, but yeah, I, I, they go, they go through routine maintenance and keep them going. And I don't really have any doubts that they'll continue to do that. So a reinforcement with sheet metal, sure. What, whatever they need to do. And I, I trust that maintenance is, I've seen a lot of great work from maintenance as far as that goes, and um, they're very transparent whenever there are issues or will ground the fleet if there's any sort of problems. I saw that uh, probably six or eight years ago, and we had to make sure that everything, the uh, the rudders were, didn't have cracking in them, and we're, yeah, it's there's a lot to it, but all, all that to say, I, I think... Uh, I don't see the C-130 going anywhere anytime soon. Yep. Um, so on that note, so say we get into a conflict with a pure adversary, China or Russia, and I know like recently in the past 20 years, we've been fighting Middle East against um, opponents who don't have great air defense systems. Mm-hmm. Um, if we say have to fly p- across the Pacific and fight a war in Southeast Asia, how is the C-130 prepared to like fly in all the cargo into areas where air defense systems are frankly much better than what we've been facing over the last 20 years or, or how, yeah. how would we deal with that problem well kind of like i was saying earlier um it comes down to that integration and what effect do you need and so there you'd have to have a really good intel picture good sweep of what those threats look like where they are how likely or how lethal those are um and if that particular threat system is going to impact or or uh, be a conflict for you when you for for whatever mission you're being tasked with to go and do, or whatever needs to be delivered, and that's when you'd go to the the planning table and say, I need um, I need some seed on this radar system in order to be able to get in here. Um, some things that we can do in C-130 land is we fly nap of the earth, so really close to the ground. Uh, we can do direct and indirect terrain masking. We can fly at night, although they can see that. Anyway, they'll see us coming regardless. Uh, but it can still help with your your uh, various, um, I guess, denying or degrading of those intel sources that might the, the enemy capabilities there so uh, use those to your advantage and then like I was saying earlier you want to fly as high as the threat allows so if you can fly higher longer and you don't look like a threat to that particular country um, the longer you can do that the better but ultimately if we need to ingress down at 
somewhere between 100 and 300 feet off the ground, we are capable of doing that. Um, and then, you know, fly on NVGs. We don't have terrain following radar, but we have moving maps. We have uh, our, our good mission planning capabilities ahead of time where you're analyzing the charts and planning your low-level route based on terrain guidance. We can map various uh, radar threat systems on our route of flight and then be able to avoid that and then plan our routes around those based on what terrain may be able to shadow us from those threats. And so you want to get as close to the fight as you can before you ask for help. So, but yeah, I don't, I don't see us doing it alone. Uh, right. Do you want to ask the final question? Oh, well, yeah. Okay. We'll go straight there. So we asked this of every single guest we have on the show. Can you defend why, you know, the C-130J is the best plane in the Air Force? I mean, last episode, Colonel Macros, uh, she sold the B-2. She so did sell I, the B-2. She, I think she's done She's done the best so far among uh, among our guests. So I don't want to compete with Colonel Macros. I mean, she's a colonel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's awesome. Um, but I, so the C-130 is a jack of all trades. Um, first of all, let's just get this out of the way. We're so much better than C-17s. And it it just ruins my day when a cadet comes into my office and says, ma'am, I want to fly C-17s. What is it like? And they think that I'm a C-17 pilot, and I, I just start crying inside. It just it kills me a little bit. Um, we can get into that. But uh, ultimately, the, the C-130 can, can really we, – we take troops and equipment into the locations that other – other types of aircraft can't get to you know we can we can stop on a dirt strip within less than 2500 feet and that's heavy fully loaded and um we can take off you know about about the same maybe a little bit longer but it it all depends on how heavy you are right and then um you go through initial and mission qual in a in a c-130 program and you're fully airdrop qualified so C-17s, on the other hand, you got to be special and get picked up for an airdrop. And, okay, sure. So I'm just going to dog on C-17s. That's yeah. the easier way to win this fight. But, um, yeah, essentially the, the Herc can, like I said, I've, I've, I've been to so many different locations around the world, but I also feel like it. we take care of our people because it's a little bit smaller footprint than some of the larger heavies. Um, Air Mobility Command doesn't necessarily track our movements quite as closely because we don't burn as much gas, so therefore we're less expensive. And so we can kind of, I don't want to necessarily say we get away with doing things on our own, but I've been given the keys to the C-130. There's no, that's a facetious term, right? But um, I'll, I'll be, I've been given the airplane for a weekend trip where uh, you know, it's a Thursday, and I'm leaving on a Friday. I just need to be somewhere by Monday for one of those joint airborne transportability trainers. I did one of these one time um, where I was told, just take the C-130 to go do some training somewhere and then make sure that you're at Fort Bliss on on Monday to do your jet. And then you're going to move a HIMARS into the Fort uh, uh, White Sands Missile Range. They're going to go download the HIMARS, do some 200-mile-long uh, rocket launch, get back out in your airplane, you're going to take off and get out of there. But on my way, I came up with a training plan where we went and did some low levels up in one of my loadmaster's hometowns, and it was for his retirement flight. And uh, we got some great training. We did some integration with some A-10s. They, um, they were, it was a, the guard unit up there, Fort Wayne. And then we planned our simulated airdrop over a point that was right by this loadmaster's his house and you know so like I I was given a lot of flexibility as long as I could defend that we were getting good training out of it which we did you know we we uh, worked with the that a10 unit we planned time control to that point in space we did our low-level reading we did coordination with airspace um, and then 
and then we went on to low to high Mars and, and the very next day. And uh, so it, every day is different in the C-130. Every single mission has some creativity to it. You're always coming up with some sort of problem solving. And I think it's caged my brain into a, how do I get to yes versus a, no, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. Um, but how do we get to yes? And how do we have some fun doing it, right? And keep people entertained, have a good time. I had a loadmaster one time from one trip. That was like this Fort Wayne trip. Um, he got our our call sign from that weekend tattooed on him because he had such a good time. I'll just just gonna throw that out there. I don't know if I Colonel, Colonel Macros has ever had a crew member get their call sign <laughs> tattooed on. Him. I guess one thing <laughs> I, I gotta ask because I know you're you're saying you gotta ask about it in the podcast. Sure. So call sign amp. Mm-hmm. What's what's the origins? I mean, um, it it's pretty literal. It's uh, a miniature pilot. Oh, oh, I didn't even. I was thinking it was like foul. electricity. Like. Yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, yep. I'm just uh, five foot two. Um, I did have to get a waiver to fly. I couldn't fly two thirty eight, so that's another part of it. But um, uh, my hip to knee length is too short for the brakes on the two thirty eight. Mm. So, but I didn't want to go that route anyway. So I think it, it all worked out. But yeah, it did. Uh, well, any uh, any closing remarks? No, um, hopefully I didn't ramble too much. No, it was uh, good. It was great. Uh, so, so first, yeah, yeah, first heavy pilot on the podcast. Oh, it yeah. was good. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Good to get, get get the different communities all represented. So uh, thanks again to uh, Major Waters for coming on episode four of the Flyover podcast. Um, just as a reminder, all these episodes are available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So really choose the platform you want to listen on and uh, share with anybody you think these podcasts would be informative on. And uh, we'll catch you guys in the next one. See you. Thank <laughs> you.